It's quite a coup. <laughs> How long were you sitting on that mat? I was, you know, thinking I could put it in somewhere in the intro and just put it there. Welcome to Airspace from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. I'm Emily. And I'm Matt. On Airspace, we're usually talking about airplanes and spacecraft or maybe hot air balloons or planets. But today, we're talking about something a little different. Homing pigeons. Before radio, homing pigeons were one of the most reliable forms of communications for sailors at sea and troops in trenches. These feathered aviators were an integral part of the American armed forces for more than 40 years, and they have some heroic deeds under their metaphorical belts. One hero bird is on display at the National Museum of American History. We're telling his story and more about these avian aviators today on Airspace, presented by Olay. What's a homing pigeon, Matt? Is it a pigeon that goes home? Essentially. I mean, it's a pigeon that's been trained to always go back home. And you can take it anywhere, and uh, it will always find its way back to that home. How how far is an anywhere? Like anywhere, anywhere? Like anywhere on the globe, anywhere, and it'll find its way home? Usually it's just a few hundred miles. In the case of the homing pigeons that we're going to talk about today, those pigeons would have messages attached to one of their legs, and they would be heading home to where sort of home base is. And, you know, the theory is that homing pigeons use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate, at least in part. And the pigeons always made their way back to their home, which was where their food was, where their friends were, where they were taken care of, where they wanted to get back to. So no matter where they were taken, they would find their way back to that spot. So if you listen to our episode about the core and we talk about how one of the opening scenes of that movie is all these birds just falling out of the sky because the Earth's magnetic field just shut off, that's what we're talking about here. Homing pigeons are using the Earth's magnetic field and their little magnets in their brains to figure out what direction they need to fly in order to get home. And so the magnetic field is really important. And so for folks who today race pigeons still... Um, and still use homing pigeons as part of one of their hobbies, they actually track space weather and they track sunspot activity because too much of that activity can mess with the bird's ability to get itself back home. We can talk about magnets in pigeons' brains forever, but um, neither of us really knows that much about pigeons. So we turn to the Smithsonian's homing pigeon guy. There's a guy for that. Hello, my name is Dr. Frank Blasich. I am a curator of modern military history here at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. For today's purposes, I want to talk about a favorite project of mine, which is researching U.S. Army homing pigeons. Homing pigeons have been around for a really long time. People have been using homing pigeons for a lot of different things, practical as well as sport. And the United States wasn't the first to use homing pigeons for battlefield communications. That went back a lot further. We do have from some ancient sources evidence and or mention that pigeons were used as a means to deliver information. And this goes back to ancient Greek, the ancient Egyptians. But the thing that kind of put pigeons on the map, if you will, with America's military leaders really is the siege of Paris, uh, beginning in, in the fall of 1870 and continuing into early 1871, where with Prussian forces cutting Paris off from outside communication, Uh, the Parisians turned to some of their only means to get information out of the city, and that was with homing pigeons. 
So first the French started using pigeons, and then a lot of armies started to actually have lofts as part of the armies and and navies as well. They would use the birds to send a message back to shore from ship. When they did that, they looked to an already existing community of pigeon racers that was already breeding and training these birds and knew what the birds were capable of. So before pigeons, ships required a line of sight in order to use things like semaphore, which is essentially flag signals, and signaling one another with mirrors. Pigeons sort of built off of that because pigeons all of a sudden had this, you know, distance that they could travel of, you know, a few hundred miles, which you can't communicate in these other ways at those distances. So for the U.S., this story begins in 1898 when the U.S. was fighting Spain after Spain sank one of the U.S. warships in Havana Harbor during the Cuban War of Independence. But it really takes off in World War One. That's when the U.S. really starts to look into uh, making pigeons a big part of how they fight and communicate in the battlefield. What really puts pigeons on the map is 1917, American entry into World War One, when General Pershing and his early staff of the American Expeditionary Forces arrive in England and then France. When they meet with their British and French counterparts, begin studying the Western Front, trying to absorb as much as they can about the technological changes in warfare, their signal officers are told, you guys need pigeons. You Americans have to have pigeons. And why is that? Well, with a stagnant battlefield and the intense use of artillery, it's very difficult slash unsafe for a human runner to say, get out of a trench, carrying a message and walking to the rear lines. They become a target for artillery. They become a target for snipers, machine gun fire, motorcycle dispatch riders, and else they are targets. They're obvious targets. The addition of mass artillery fires makes wired communications uh, very difficult because you're constantly having wires cut. Uh, you're, out, you're having then to send people out to repair the wires. That is labor intensive, resource intensive. Not to mention, when we think of wire tapping, it's very easy to tap a wire then. You can just literally go in and hook right into the existing uh, wired communication line. So that issue of information security is becoming limited. One of the things that's also interesting about military history is, you know, the way that one army might do a thing and then other armies follow suit. So technologies become prevalent in one army and then they move to another, the airplane, the tank, etc. Well, the same was true with pigeons in this case. So what did this look like? The fighting in World War One, as we know, a lot of it took place in trenches where people were stuck kind of in the same position for long periods of time, making really gruesome pushes forward, trying to get into enemy territory. Well, Meanwhile, the pigeons were actually housed off the front lines in permanent or mobile lofts, which was the places that when they were taken to the front lines, this is where they would fly home to. This is what the pigeons are trained to home. That is the physical home where they live. That's where food is. That's where their mates are located. And so once the pigeons are trained and they're acclimated and they're ready for operations, the pigeoneers will basket the birds and they actually sex them. So the male and female pigeons are kept separate in weaker baskets. This is so that when the pigeons are waiting to be used, they don't date, if you will, and decide that, hmm, rather than do our job for the army, let's go off and make more little pigeons. And so this is why they actually had to be segregated by sex. Uh, so the male and female pigeons would always be sent out, all boys, all girls. 
once they're put in these wicker baskets, and you could either have two birds to a basket or it could be four birds to a basket. Again, it depended on the equipment. Uh, the pigeons would then be relayed to the front and they would often be moved by motorcycle sidecar. So you have some wonderful photos of uh, a motorcyclist and next to him is someone in the sidecar holding pigeon baskets. So pigeons would be brought to the front. There were then people in these infantry units who had training not so much in how to train the pigeons to home, but they had been trained in how do you physically handle the birds? How do you get them out of the container without hurting them? How do you take care of the pigeon? Because while it is a piece of communications equipment, it's also a living creature. But once at the front, pigeons would usually only be kept in their little wicker baskets for about 48 hours. They were kind of given only like snacks, not like three squares every day, just little snackies, which really made sure that the pigeons were super motivated to fly home as quickly as possible <laughs> to get a nice hot meal. I don't think they eat hot meals, but a meal. I don't meal. actually yeah, know if they heated the meals, but that's what I imagine. If somebody feeds me snacks all day, all I want to do is get home for a hot meal. So that's yes. how I'm envisioning it. They just give them little snackies. So when you need your bird, you take it out of your wicker basket, you put a note on its leg telling, you know, whatever information needs to get back from the front, you roll it up, you put it in a capsule, and you put it on the bird's leg, and the pigeoneer then releases it up and it flies back home, ideally, uh, straight home with that message. Releases it gently, Matt. Gently. Gently, yes. And these messages couldn't be long, right? You can't just, like, put a whole scroll worth of text on the leg of a pigeon. The messages were usually short, um, and they were usually sort of communicating where to direct fire or sharing coordinates about a group that was taking on heavy fire that they couldn't handle. Um, and so it was really an important way for the front line to communicate with everybody else to make sure that they could get what they needed. And it seems like a low-tech maybe almost primitive way of communicating. But in fact, it has a lot of benefits that radio communication doesn't, right? Radio signals can be intercepted. It's not that easy to actually intercept a bird in flight and prevent it from getting its message home. You're totally right, Matt. Your ability to intercept a pigeon flying back home is is a lot harder. Um, and so while it is low tech, it's actually really highly effective. Sometimes simpler is better. So, you know, like their human counterparts, there were actually opportunities for the birds to be commended for their heroism. And there are a few really great stories of pigeons saving soldiers in one way or another. And the most famous is the story of the Lost Battalion. In the, uh, the dim morning light of September 26, 1918, after several hours of preparatory artillery fire had concluded, uh, the United States military moved out in what would become the largest and bloodiest battle ever fought by the United States, which is the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. Men of the 77th Division, uh, which was largely known as the Metropolitan Division, coming from New York City, was assigned basically to penetrate the line through the Argonne Forest. The ideal place to fight a battle, to fight through a forest, because, you know, there's no obstacles there, like... Uh, watering holes or creeks or mud pits or trees or tangles of vines or brambles or lots of machine gun posts, oh, which unfortunately there were. The 75th Division is going to find itself, in no other way to say it, a hell of a fight to try to push the Germans out of a forest that they had occupied since 1914 and that the French had repeatedly tried and failed to dislodge. But there will be one notable success, and that's with the men of the 1st Battalion of the 308th Infantry Regiment, commanded by a Major Charles Whittlesey. 
So Whittlesey's regiment fought their way through the line, but they then sort of found themselves in a situation where they were surrounded and they didn't have any way to communicate with the rest of the army. But they did have some homing pigeons. And to kind of make matters worse, the coordinates in the first message that they sent back were wrong. And so the Allies had actually started bombing them and shooting them. So they were essentially had put themselves into a worse situation. So Whittlesey and his men are now taking heavy casualties, including from their own people. And they need their people to stop and actually send them some help. So who are you going to call? The Pigeoneer. With American artillery landing all around, men screaming, dirt flying, body parts, everything flying in the air, total chaos. Whittlesey calls for his pigeoneers, and there's two birds left. And he essentially writes a very short and direct message, which is, we are located at the road at this position, or our own troops are you know, dropping artillery on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. He writes this message, the pigeoneer reaches in the basket to pull out the first bird, and in the confusion, the bird breaks free of his grasp and flies away. According to one of the bystanders, Major Whittlesey uttered, quote, an uncharacteristically rude word. I'm just going to assume it was balderdash or darn or, or tarn sarnet. I kind of think of Major Whittlesey's times as Ned Flanders, uh, but that's probably not fair. That being said, uh, there's one pigeon left. Uh, the pigeoneer had a, quote, firm grasp on this pigeon, got it out of its basket. Uh, the message is encapsulated in its little aluminum leg capsule. It's attached to the bird's right leg. American practice is not to toss the bird. You're supposed to release your grip so the bird naturally flies away. So the bird flies away. It flies up to the treetops and lands in a tree and begins to preen its feathers. After all, it had been confined for a couple days. It probably wanted to stretch, it, you know, stretch itself out and relax. That's not what the soldiers want to see. They don't want to see their last message of hope sitting in a tree, essentially combing its hair. So at that point, the men are screaming at the bird, throwing rocks at the bird, probably uttering uncharacteristically rude words at the bird. And what does the pigeon do? It hops to a higher branch. Then Whittlesey actually sends the pigeoneer to climb the tree and get the bird out of the tree, which he does successfully and miraculously doesn't get shot while doing it. Finally, the bird actually lifts off, gets above the tree canopy and begins to circle. And this is, the bird's orienting itself. That's why it does a little circle and begins heading south back to the American lines. According to one witness report, there was an artillery shell went off beneath the pigeon and they saw the bird then flutter to the bottom of this ravine that the men had passed through. So did the bird get through? Did it not get through? Nobody at this point knows. But then the friendly artillery stops hitting them and starts hitting the Germans. So then they knew the message had gotten through. But what the Lost Battalion didn't know at the time was the price that that bird had paid to get the message through. The pigeon comes back to Loft and it's clearly wounded. The message capsule is hanging to the ligaments of the remains of the right leg. And there is clear evidence that either a bullet or a shell fragment has cut across the breastbone of the bird. So the bird's grievously wounded, but the message is still there. And that pigeon may have been a bird named Cher Ami, an English pigeon who had been dispatched to the sector at that time. And when the word spread after the war that this pigeon was the one that saved the lives of the Lost Battalion, it became a bit of a celebrity. The problem is that over time, 
Records were lost that could have proven that this was the actual bird. And records were also lost that told whether Cherami was a female or male pigeon. But instead, what we know is that this is a bird that was there, that did carry a message, and that has injuries consistent with the bird that was basically took shrapnel while flying back with the message. Whether Cherami did or did not carry the famous message from the Lost Battalion, the records show that he did return to his loft with a message dangling from the ligaments of the leg that had been amputated by rifle or shell shot. He was shot through the breast, and it was from the effect of this wound that he died. With that information, that is basically what became the label for Cherami going on display. But we will never conclusively be able to say yes or no that Cherami was one of the hero pigeons of the Lost Battalion. What we do know is that the bird, its physical body, it took enemy fire. And it still made it home. And it still brought back news from the front. Any pigeon that's delivering a message from the front is delivering a message that needed to get back, that could not be carried by a human messenger. They were unable to send it by radio or wired communication. So it was, it was an important message. And Shermie did that, despite wounds that could have easily killed the pigeon, that could have caused the pigeon to give up. Instead, Shermie made it home. And to me, that's really the, the valor of this bird that, regardless of who it was carrying a message for or where, makes Jeremy a hero. And in one of our beloved treasures here at the National Museum of American History, one of my personal heroes, albeit a little feathered hero. Now, if you're not a French speaker, Jeremy means dear friend. But after the war, Cherami and several other pigeons were brought back to the United States as heroes. Cherami in particular became famous, became the subject of children's books, books for grown-ups, and at least one film. And if you're interested, DNA studies have shown that Cherami is, in fact, a male pigeon. Is that important to this tale of bravery? Mm, not really. But some people worked really hard to figure it out, and we acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah. They did the science. And science is important. So fast forwarding, after all of the articles and parades and the celebration of Cherami, Cherami was taxidermied and put on display. And um, you can see Cherami on display at the National American History Museum here in Washington, D.C. So we mentioned that, you know, in World War One, you know, radio existed. There was other higher tech ways of communicating. So even in World War One. Homing pigeons were pretty low-tech but highly effective. And because of this, pigeons were also used in World War II and the Korean War. Although by the time of World War II and the Korean War, wireless radio had become a lighter technology and a cheaper technology and, frankly, an easier technology to use than pigeons. So even if there were drawbacks of, you know, the enemy being able to intercept your radio signal, radio became more of the standard and pigeons started to be phased out of military service. So the military isn't using pigeons today, but that doesn't mean there aren't people who are still raising and training pigeons and people who still believe, including our guest for this episode, that um, pigeons could still actually compete with digital technologies or, in fact, work together with digital technologies like tiny computer chips holding terabytes of information and, and be an asset to the military today. Airspace is from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. It's produced by Katie Moyer and Jennifer Weingart, mixed by Tarek Fuda. Additional help from Amy Stamm and Sophia Soto-Sugar. 
If you love the Airspace podcast, and I know you do, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you don't love us, you don't need to write a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AirspacePod, and don't forget to subscribe. Airspace is presented by Olay and distributed by PRX.